Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That's why I said, you said, show me something real, show me something true. And what is real is that you are loved. What is true is that you're not alone, man. And then raise the curtain. Let the people in the booth see last words and then commence the execution. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I've long had an obsession with the death penalty and death row. I've grappled with the barbarity of it, the fact 27 of 50 states in America still have it as a legal penalty, while at least 4% of people on death row are said to be innocent, and there have been 185 exonerations since 1973 of people wrongly convicted but sentenced to death. I struggle with the moral bright line where an eye for an eye might possibly make some kind of sense, with what it must be like living with the uncertain certainty that is death dangling above you every waking moment, and how you'd frame your life, how you'd create meaning as death approaches, and while you really don't have much else to do when you're sitting in prison, but reckon with what was often a horrendously bad snap judgment at some point in your life. I've previously interviewed Sister Helen Prejean, the the nun who walks death row inmates to their death, and whose biography, Dead Man Walking, became a film starring Susan Sarandon as Sister Helen. And I'll put the link to that wild interview in the show notes. In that conversation, Sister Helen and I talk about how faith in an afterlife and a higher power of some sort can provide a bigger picture of life and it can put a life cut short into a peaceful framing of insignificance in many ways. Indeed, studies show that the majority of prisoners become believers in some kind of God while they're in jail. And one study found that this conversion can often be a way for a prisoner to shift their identity from prisoner or murderer to convert. But the other week, I came across a profile in the New York Times of an atheist chaplain who ministered a convicted killer, Philip Hancock, in the state of Oklahoma for over a year to his final moments. Hancock did not believe in God. He was a nihilist and in fact converted from being a Christian to a non-believer while he was in jail. After reading the story, a lot of questions piled up. Questions I think we all ask at junctures in our lives because all of us have a sword dangling above us, an awareness that death hovers always. What counsel does a chaplain offer? How does he care for a man's soul without deferring to a forgiving God and an afterlife. If there is no other space out there, if there's no other entity taking care of things, what must a human find in themselves to cope with their own passing and the passing of of loved ones? Even more broadly, what must we find in ourselves as humans, all of us today, grappling with the dialed up existential threats to cope? I reached out to the chaplain, Devin Moss, after reading the feature, and he agreed to join me here on Wild to answer these and other very, very existential questions that I, and I imagine many of you out there, also have. We kick off the chat with a question that invariably and a little bizarrely comes up during discussions of death and death row. 
what your final meal would be. I remember this was something my brothers and I and friends at school used to debate as kids. It's a slightly macabre and absurd question to ponder. Why would one meal matter with terror only hours away? I often used to think as a kid, how could you possibly want to eat anything when death is so close? And yet for some reason, the question signifies something deeper. And so it's the question Devon and I kick off with in this conversation. Devon, it's absolutely wonderful to have you join me here on Wild. We're speaking to you, well, I'm speaking to you in, you're in Brooklyn, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, it looks like a grey afternoon there. So, look, this might seem like an odd place to kick off a conversation about death and God and so on, but my understanding is that Philip Hancock, who you looked after, you walked to his final moments by execution, he requested a final meal and that meal that he requested in his his last hours was KFC, but he had specific requests, but it kind of went wrong. And I'm wondering if you can explain to everybody what happened in, in, in that particular very poignant moment in his last hours. Yeah. It, I mean, it is, it is sad and it it is is the one of the many things, but it's actually at the top of the list that really continues to affect me emotionally when I when I think back about that time. Yes, it was his last meal, but it's something that he had thought about for essentially years, right? And from the beginning of our relationship was was almost a year. It was talked about that he wanted dark meat fried chicken. And there were many jokes and many laughs about how he was just going to eat the skin and how he doesn't want white meat. And so there's a lot of buildup, as as one could imagine, having so much time to think about one's last meal to then really create this Pavlovian sort of emotional response to what that is going to be. And so I was with him on the last day or the the day before the execution and I had a four hour visit and and a lot of that four hours that we that we spent together was talking about the chicken and he would say things like you know if the governor decides to pardon me I hope he does so after I have my last meal right and so come to find out that instead of a large bucket of dark meat original recipe Kentucky fried chicken they got him a 10-piece chicken finger and it was dry. He ended up having to cut it up into pieces and putting it into some ramen that he made. I, I didn't learn about this until till the morning of. And at that point, I had to you know, create a space where I was poised and not affected by such things emotionally. But since then, once I was able to turn the feeling valve back on for that to give that space it is it's just a hard it's a hard thing to come to terms with that a system can be so dehumanizing or or at least incompetent or malice something that that they could screw that up and it turns out that wasn't the last thing that they screwed up but that was just, it was a series of these, maybe from the outside, fairly insignificant looking things or things that someone who, again, is looking at the outside is like, well, they're, you know, they're incarcerated, they're convicted felons, they're convicted murderers, whatever the fill in the blank is, it doesn't matter anyway. But I, but I would offer is that there's just for so many of these people, that's their whole life experience. Yeah. It speaks to our humanity, doesn't it? The fact that we can't gift that final dignity of a request that they, and they have, I understand it's sort of something that they have a right to, to request a final meal and, and to not offer that dignity into that person in those final, final moments. So Devon, I will just ask you to backtrack briefly and explain what Philip was actually charged with, what his situation was and why he was still saying it was self-defense right up until the final moments. So Phil was convicted of a double homicide. The court documents and, and the stories 
match. There was one eyewitness. So it, it, it goes that Phil went to the house of, of the two victims to get his girlfriend. They were all doing meth. Phil's girlfriend, who has since signed a declaration stating that she did hire these two men to kill Phil. And this was because Phil didn't like his girlfriend taking drugs. And so there was the point of conflict there. Yes. I mean, to to be fair to the story, Phil also did meth. It was his girlfriend started shooting meth, which Phil was adamantly against. And so he went over there to, to, to help her. There was an argument over a pack of cigarettes. The One of the victims grabbed a, a torque wrench for his Harley that was in the living room, hit Phil with it. Phil then wrestled with him. The guy that attacked him had a gun in his waistband. Phil grabbed the gun and there was more commotion. And then Phil shot both men in that space. Hmm. And he claims um, self-defense. So Yes, and there's a lot of evidence to support that claim. Like, listen, Phil is a violent person. He has violent tendencies. Knowing his childhood story, I know why. This sort of goes to like why I understand why he's lost faith. How could one not, right? And so once you sort of know his story, you're like, how could you not have this response when someone attacks you? And of course, for years and years, he'd been appealing his sentence for a double murder and I'll let you explain from there. There was, you know, literally up to the 11th hour, there was hope, the chance that he would be pardoned. So the way it works is 21 days prior to the date of execution, the they get a clemency hearing and it's a board of five people. Each side, the state makes a case and the Phil's attorneys made their case. And then that board in that moment grants whether or not they recommend clemency, which is a little bit different than a, than a pardon, which actually just essentially uh, gives them life in, in prison. So this board of five did vote three to two to recommend clemency. So what happens then is then it goes onto the governor's desk and the governor of the, of the state of Oklahoma then decides whether or not he personally wants to grant clemency, wants to spare the life of that person, in this case, Philip Hancock. What I think is also important to remember here is that Governor Stitt is a devout Christian and wants to put the Bible back into public schools in Oklahoma and has a an agenda that is extremely fundamental Christian, evangelical fundamental Christian. And so one would maybe presume that that part of that package is grace and forgiveness. Anyway, so now we have 21 days. The governor can make this decision to grant clemency at any point in this 21 days. Typically, precedence has been that he does it the day of or the day before. So just imagine that, that not only have you spent the last 20 years on death row, but now you have a 21-day sentence. Of, 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 <laughs> of, yeah, it really is like this. Talk about liminal spaces, right? And... And so there was optimism and there was hope. There was hope from the attorneys. Nobody really thought that, that the board is going to grant clemency. And, and there is, there's a lot of evidence in the case that, that it was self-defense. There really was. And so the argument was a strong argument, particularly in the state of Oklahoma, where stand your ground, which is a law that's saying you have the right, if you are threatened, if your life is threatened, you have the right to retaliate with deadly force. That was in play anyway. And so there is hope for Phil and there's the attorneys are feeling very confident. And so we're just trying, to, and, and I'm in a position of, of still trying to prepare for the worst, which is, a, again, a hard thing to surf hope and reality and, and things of that nature. And so even the morning of November 30th, the date of the execution, we still had not heard from the governor. And it turns out the execution time was set for 10 a.m. in the morning, even at 10 a.m., we still hadn't heard from the governor. And so the execution was, was pushed, in, which is like an, another moment of potential to display grace, humanity, hmm. per, you know, display dignity to someone else was not shown. And so 
ultimately the governor made his decision, which was to not grant clemency and to go ahead with the execution. Hmm. You bring up a number of points there, and I think in particular this idea of of humanism, you know, going to the heart of what it means to be human and then also almost a, a contrast in some ways with the behaviour of of those who, I guess, represent the Christian right. And it's interesting because we might backtrack a little because you are a chaplain, an atheist chaplain, and to some that might even sound like an oxymoron. Also, it's very unusual for someone in jail to actually go to their death not believing in God. In fact, it's generally the other way around. There's been a lot of studies that show the number of people that can some kind of Christian or, or, or sort of religious association when they're in jail. I think they're called, was it Jailhouse Jesuses? And Philip was was the other way around. He'd actually entered as a Christian, and we'll get to that in a moment, and then, and then decided that he didn't believe in God. But can you give a, a sort of a short-potted history of how you wound up in this space? Because my understanding is you also grew up Christian, but wound up as an atheist chaplain. Yeah. Okay. So I was raised evangelical as, as well. I was actually in private Christian school up until the fourth grade. It never really connected. I, just, I guess I remember I was always a little bit of a, I was a curious kid. It just didn't always make sense to me, but I always had a spiritual leaning. I wanted to, to believe in something. And so that sort of you know, what we call it sort of the God-sized hole in our hearts is that I was always looking to fill that with something. And and as a as young adult, I tried to be Catholic. I went to confirmation classes. There's a lot I liked about that. There was a lot I didn't like about that. I tried Southern Baptists. Many things ultimately leading me to this idea of being agnostic. And to me, what that meant is, is agnostic was like, meh, I just don't have to talk about it in public really. Because with my family, atheists might as well have said, I'm going to go out and kill every puppy on the street that I see, right? I mean, that was like evil. And so, yeah, so atheism was always a dirty word in my childhood and, and growing up. And so agnostic was just a way to to leave that hanging, so to speak. And then fast forward to in 2015, I started this podcast called The Adventures of Memento Mori that was trying to find a little bit of a lark, but trying to find the meaning of life through the lens of our mortality. And, you know, wouldn't you know that I started talking to the most amazing people and was constantly being inspired. And you would think a, a, a topic about death would be depressing, but it was actually enlivening. And I, I just so happened to do a mini series on religious beliefs in the afterlife and I was interviewing this Zen Buddhist, and after our interview, she looks at me and says, you know, you would make a good chaplain. And I, I was like, nope, can't do that because I don't believe in God. And then in, in a very Zen Buddhist way, she responds with, well, I don't believe in God either. The, the question is, what do you believe in? And she said, well, why don't you just sit with that and, and let it stew and so I sat and I stewed and uh, like I, I have this phrase, like the breadcrumbs started to appear and the, the breadcrumbs became bread loaves and I could no longer ignore them and yada yada. Next thing you know, I'm sending out my application to seminary school as a non-theist. And then about a year ago, his attorneys approached me to, to be his spiritual care advisor. Mm, okay. So what I'm really interested in is when you're working with somebody like Philip with his life story and situation, what comfort, what consolations do you provide to somebody who does not believe in an afterlife, does not believe in a God, in something bigger than them? You could probably speak to your own experience. What do you believe in? If not an all-present God, you know, can you answer that for yourself, I guess, in the first instance? Yeah, and the answer to that question took me a little bit to get to. And I think I think that struggle to find the answer is where all the magic happens. And so I would just sort of, at the, before I give the long answer, I would offer to your audience is if you find yourself in that area of doubt, embrace it, be in it, wrestle with it, 
that is where you you find what you really believe in, not what you inherited. And so, I, what I what I came to was that I believe in the potential for humans to do and be good beyond themselves. I I believe in the potential of humanity, and I am a humanist. I don't necessarily consider humanism a religion. It's a it's a philosophy. It's a it's a life stance philosophy. We have guidelines that moral manifestos and ethics and, and those things. I don't even think we we need written down ethics to really understand what our own moral compasses are. I, I think we can get there without that, and I certainly think that we we can get there without a God and the, the Almighty. And and that's and that's what I am. And so and so you know in the New York Times they headlined it that I was you know that I am an atheist chaplain. It is technically correct. I am atheist. I don't believe in a god. I mean, I consider myself a humanist chaplain because I, I like to phrase things about what I what I actually do believe in. I don't go around defining myself by what I am not. I prefer to define myself by by what I am. And that's where I landed. And and it's it is kind of that simple. Mm. So Philip, as I mentioned earlier, he entered prison as a Christian. He'd actually been quite an active Christian when he was younger, but he came to unbelieve and in a quite interesting way. And my understanding is that missionaries would come in and and try to talk, sort of counsel him and talk him through things, and he found himself having robust arguments with them. And in the robust arguing and sort of you know, going back and reading the Bible and being prepared next week for, for a counterpoint, he undid his belief in God. So I would love for you to talk through is what you and Philip did talk about. I want to get to sort of the, the meaty part of your humanist discussion because, you know, I'm sure, I mean, you were there to provide counsel as he grappled with moral, spiritual, all kinds of questions. That question that dangled, you know, when will I die? Most of us know we're going to die. We spend most of our lives trying to block it out, distract ourselves from that reality. It's one of the cruelest ironies that as as humans, we're the only species who are you know, acutely aware of our death and we must live with that and the consequences of it. And it defines so much of our avoidance strategies, religion. So it's a very, as you say, I mean, to contemplate what you have faith in goes to the crux of who you are and what your, what your existence is about. So, I mean, I'm fascinated by what it is that you did talk about, what it was that provided the faith, the hope, the the ability to wake up each day in a jail cell or in your case, in your home in Brooklyn and and facing it all. So I will also add, which I think is is not only more nuanced than, than the New York Times article, but is important for people to understand too, is that so I am a humanist. Phil Phil would identify as a rational nihilist. And so yes there's a there's a common ground of we're both atheist. But I think where the real wrestling match happens is is I like I said I believe that in humanity I believe that we have the potential to to be and do good beyond ourselves. Phil did not believe in that. He believed that we were humans are morally bankrupt and there is no such thing as inherent goodness that it's all a framework and it's all learned behavior right and so that's the tension like we talked about god a lot because it's also important to to understand well it was important for me to understand going into chaplaincy that when people are in acute moments of crisis be it a hospital bed or or in a prison cell they oftentimes see the world or contextualize the world through mythology through and through symbolism. And although Phil did not believe in God, he contextualized his pain through God. Well, he, he, he saw God as evil. Why should he love a benevolent God that does not love him back? And so God must be a fraud. He saw God as a, as a fixture of punishment even more so than his jailers, right? Even more so than the state of Oklahoma, which, which, he, did, which he did see them as also evil as well. But it, it helped him express himself. It helped him express his anger 
by directing that anger to God. Whether or not he believed really in God, he still talked about, we still talked about God constantly. We sort of danced with it together, but I think where, where we really had the, the back and forth was the idea of hope, idea of goodness, the idea of joy, you know, and I, I certainly wasn't there to, to proselytize or preach, and I certainly wasn't there to change his mind about anything, but I wanted him to feel that I was present with him and wasn't there to save his soul. I wasn't there to change his mind because mm. that's not what people, that's not what people need. And that's not what people want when they are the most vulnerable is to be judged, right? They need to be heard and they need to be loved. Yeah. So in many ways, the conversation you are having is sort of at the nexus of so much that is discussed when you have to contemplate God and the role of God, because God represented not just love and joy, which is what a lot of people do try to impose on a God figure, especially when they're at a crisis point, but also unfairness, cruelty, those kinds of things as well. And it sounds like, yeah, he was wrestling with all of that. And the reason why I'm really interested in this, Devon, is that I think that that kind of wrestle is playing out in everyday life. At the moment, I think as a as a society, as a species, we are wrestling with that. We're watching what is happening in the world and trying to grapple with the inequities, with the cruelty, with the way that we that leaders have to sort of sacrifice a whole bunch of other people's lives for these ends that we feel are, in, are not justified. And that is, it, it's a really hard wrestle. And I feel that this is a discussion that more and more people are going to be having. Does God exist? How can God be this benevolent figure and yet let this happen? And, you know, I could pick your crisis, really. To turn to humanism and to think that humans are inherently good and capable of good, that's also a really difficult leap for a lot of people. How do you hold that on to that in the face of, and let's just refer to this space, the execution this horrible process where, you know, his final meal was even botched. How do you hold on to humanist principles, you know, in 2024? It is an incredible leap of faith. I, you know, and even thinking about it, it's harder to believe with all of the evidence that we have in the contrary that, that humans are inherently good and have the potential, right? And it is a struggle to stand in that place and it's not hope and it's not optimism it is because that is the only way out we need to have a gravitational force to even if it's made up potential i do believe there is i do believe there's a potential 100% i do believe we fall insanely short of our potential i think it's a form of radical hope radical hope being something that is an ideal that we we must believe in so that we can keep working in that direction and then we can actually illustrate it, demonstrate it, bring it out in each other as almost a first principle to living. And do so in the circumstances in which it is the most difficult. Yes. Because it it is easy to take, I don't call the low road, but but it is not easy in these circumstances to be like, I'm going to sort of display my humanity in the face of fill in the blank. My oppressor, my sentencer, right? It's, it's, it's not easy. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, I might move on to the final moments with, with Phil. And so you moved from Brooklyn, didn't you, in the end, to Oklahoma for a while, specifically to be near him in these final weeks or months. What made you make that big move? And was he touched by that? We talked every day, so we could do that. He had a tablet in his cell, so he would call me fairly randomly. Uh, so I was always on call anyway. And as the date became closer, I, I just wanted to have an in-person visit with him every Friday. Right. So that was important to me. And so I left in October, the beginning of October. And, you know, his clemency hearing, and uh, I wanted to be more on Team Phil as it, as it came with the volunteers and the attorneys. And it, it just felt like that was going to be a lot easier to do within Oklahoma. And I wanted to, I wanted to understand Oklahoma and I wanted to meet Oklahomans. And I, you know, I, I did meet the politicians and, I did meet the abolitionists and I did go to uh, other faith-based groups. And so I, I just tried to be in it mm. to fully to fully understand it and thereby just being closer to, to Phil. Yeah. So you were in the execution chamber with him. I'm wondering, is there anything at all that can prepare you for that moment? Yes. And, and, I, and I say that quite seriously because I, I realized it in the moments after is every conversation we had with Phil, I needed all 100 plus, I needed all year. I needed every patient visit at Bellevue during a pandemic. I needed everything that I learned from serving five years in the Marine Corps. So it felt like in that 15 minutes that I was there, I needed all of that as preparation in, in many forms to to hold the space that needed to be held for for Phil and and do it in a way that w was respectful for him and made it about him but yet still claiming that space you know and I, I also will add that it's very common that the prison chaplain will have a couple visits with with the person being executed prior. And they'll just go in there and they'll recite a, a prayer. And that dumbfounds me because, because I, I think it is, it is very important that, that you know the person and you know the person well. And I just could not imagine doing that on a week's notice. Yeah. When you asked, what would you like me to do? Would you like me to do a prayer or a meditation with you? And he quoted from the Bible. He said, show me something real. Show me something true. What did you reply to that? I originally asked that question like on month two. What can I do for you? Because like, listen, I, you know, I, I, I am insecure in this role. I, I want to be a value, right? But when... When you are humanists and you aren't religious and you're filling, you know, a, a role, a spiritual role, it's you have history and you have rituals and you have things mm. to help you. And, you know, Phil could be all over the place. He was he was highly intelligent. He would like to talk about many things. He would rant about many things. And it felt like I was doing a lot of chasing. And I was doing a lot of like, oh boy. What am I doing? And I fell over my head. And, and so somebody gave me the wise advice to just ask, what do you, what do you want from me as your spiritual care advisor? And that was his, an his answer was, he said it was Philippians chapter four, verses seven and eight. It's not a direct translation, certainly in, in the King James. Doesn't matter anyway, because it's what it's, his answer is what matters. 
And so then that, show me something real, show me something true, was the thing that led me through the entire journey, right? And what's, what's interesting, as you pointed out about that question, the beauty of it is that it changes in every circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so, and so what I, what I, the answer to that was actually a lead from Sister Helen Prejean, because I emailed her for advice in my, oh, like, oh. I did. I was like, what am I doing? Please help, please, somebody, and who better than Sister Helen Prejean? And it was, it was like a one answer email response was just let him know that you see him as a, as a loving person and, and that you're grateful for the experience. Mm. At the time I was like, give me, give me, I need, I need something more, but I, but I didn't. And that's, and that's the, that's the beauty of it. And so I did ground the place with a, with a prayer at the beginning. And do you remember what the prayer was? Are you, is that something you can read I, out? I, I do. I have it one second. I I wrote this the morning of. I wanted to, as quickly as possible, make it a, a sacred place. But I also wanted everybody in the room, but Phil in particular, to see what my role was in there. So I, I went in and very quickly said... And uh, can I just ask, he's, yeah, yeah. he's strapped to a sort of a, a bed, is that right? He's lying on his back. It it is shaped like a cross, so his arms are are out, stretched out. He's strapped from chest. The, the main there's a main strap sort of over his torso. His legs are all stripped, strapped down. I am only allowed to to touch him below the knees. Yeah, so I quickly went in and and looked for a spot in his leg, but his legs were all strapped, and so I just had to work my way up his his leg and finally found his kneecap, which was under a sheet, but at least I could feel his kneecap. And so that's, so I held his kneecap. The corrections officer was masked. He's mainly actually guarding me. So the corrections officer is, is literally like a foot from me to keep me away from Phil's arm where the, you know, where he was IV'd up. And then the, the director of operations who was running the show was, was to my right. And so it's very choreographed. You walk in, it's a very matter of fact. And again, this is why it's sort of, my military background, I think, helped understand and, and operate in that setting. Yeah. yeah. Formalities, intensity. Coldness. Everybody had a very, very specific. Yeah. We did, we did warm it up a, a bit after this, but so I went in there and I, and I put my hand on his knee. And then I said, calling in the spirit of humanity into this space. Let love fill our hearts. We ask that in this transition into peaceful oblivion, that Phil feels that love. And although this is his journey, that he knows that he is not alone. We invoke the power of peace, strength, grace, and surrender. And then an amen. To, to close it out. And then I, and then I went into, you know, I went into, to share with Phil all the things that I learned from him and appreciated about him. We kind of joked around a little bit and even like the, the director of operations who was with us kind of got in on the joke. And so that was actually a moment of humanity. It was mm. just being, being real. And even let's sort of t- to fast forward a little bit, because I think it's important is that, I don't know if the microphone was off at this point because the reporters were in another room watching and and there was a microphone. So I don't know if they heard this, but the last sentence of Phil's final words was to thank the director of operations of the prisons, AKA his executioner or his professionalism. And so even in that moment, Phil was able to find his humanity and be like, Hey man, I just want to thank you for, yeah. For being so professional and and keeping this on the up and up, which I which I I found to be profoundly human, and so I, yeah, that's so why I said you know you 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 said show me something real, show me something true, and what is real is that you are loved, 
I am here as a proxy to that love. I'm here as a proxy to your mother who loves you and your brother who loves you. And there were people out in the witnesses of his that, that loved you and I love you. And what is true is that, that you're not alone, man. I'm here to, to let you know that. And then it's kind of essentially raise the curtain, let the people in the booth see last words and then commence the execution. Hmm. It's hard to fathom. And I know Oklahoma, there's some stuff going on at the moment in the press just about their rules around execution. I think there's another case up at the moment that's been, that's very much challenging their rules there. But as I mentioned earlier, Devin, a lot of what you were grappling with, with Phil, the questions that you are asking, they're questions I feel that many of us are asking at this juncture in human history. There are so many existential threats that we we are facing as a collective. And I feel that some of the questions that you've posed here are ones that we need to be asking more broadly. You know, I think it was Montagna or there was some other existentialist or some stoic. There's been many who have said that, you know, when we face death, we truly learn to live. And I think there's some philosophers that say every day should be a practice in facing our death. You know, it equips us. The more that we can go to that space, the more we're able to live fully, you know, but also because, you know, there's this deadline, we're aware of the deadline, we're not just sweeping it under the carpet with some technology or some other kind of, of distraction. And I'm wondering whether that is something that is real for you. Are you having to ask these questions of yourself in the face of, you know, the calamities? I mean, you're, you're in America at the moment, you're, you're facing a an election later in the year and everything that's going to come with that. Are you asking these kinds of questions more broadly and how are you answering them? Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question because I ag agree with that. And I promote the idea of, of meditation practice and many forms of, of our finitude. And I, I think it's when done right is incredibly helpful. I will say now for me, I do realize that I, I, lost the forest for the trees. I got so in it that I I forgot to live the, the point of, of the meditation to begin with. And what what kind of shook me out of this, again, it's all simple things, but it was the, it was actually the day after the execution. And I get this newsletter from a, a chaplain group and it's the spiritual tip of the day. And I, you know, it's something that I get every day and I, I open it once out of 300 times, but I opened it this morning, that morning. And it, it led with the Taoist description of life is a series of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And that made me realize is that it is also 10,000 joys. It feels that we are leaning hard into the 10,000 sorrows year, right? We feel the sorrows more. And it was just, it was a, it was a beautiful reminder that, that there, there are equal amounts of joy. They may be harder to get to, they may be less obvious, but we need to develop the muscles of holding both in each hand. Yes, the world is shit. Yes, it feels like the existential cliff is looming and yet we still got to take that breakdancing class. You know, we, we, we have to have a good meal. We have to have a good belly laugh. We got to hug it out. Like it's important that, that we are able to do both, not equal parts, like one for one, but mm -hmm. we, but we got to live as though when the sum is tallied, that that'll be an even split. It's a responsibility, isn't it? If we go back to those humanist principles, all of us who have got the capacity, all of us who are driven to to keep hope of some sort, radical, active, whatever form you work to, alive, we do have to display as much humanity as we can. And we do that in joyous moments. We do that in touch points. We do that in bravely reaching out to others. We do that in 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 contemplating these kinds of questions so that we do have an answer when someone says to us, show me something real, show me, show me something true. We need to be able to provide the counsel. And, and I think the idea of a responsibility to live 
enjoy as well in equal measure to, to the pain. It is something we need to do. And I think there's a lot of people watching what's happening on the news around the world and feeling almost a little guilty for getting on with joy and and pleasures and love. And I think, you know, the humanist principles, the humanist take is that, well, no, we still have to be fully human. We've got to express both. And I think it's a really wonderful reminder. I'm wondering as a, a final sort of sign-off, are there any humanist principles that you learned in your training that you've learned from this experience working with Phil that is something that people could take away from this conversation, a practice, a meditation that can get them into this space that perhaps you use daily or otherwise? I would say practice compassion. And compassion is not a cup that overfloweth. Compassion is not inert. It's it's only magic when you act upon it, right? It's like a chia pet. You got to water it. And, you know, empathy has definitely has its kale moment, right? Empathy is, is a, is a thing that we all talk about and it's included in everything. But I will say, let's focus on compassion for a minute because compassion does not require you to understand. Compassion just asks you to show up with your heart open. And that is the hard practice. I don't need to, I don't need to walk a mile in your shoes. I don't need to get it. I shouldn't need to get it. I just need to be like, I don't get it, but here I am. It's and sitting I don't in the uncertainty be- of the human experience, but I think there is a knowingness. There is a point of connection, and that is just the feeling, the feeling of that other person's mm-hmm. humanity. We've lived in such a rational world for so long. We feel like we can only give our love and care once we understand the circumstances. And I'm with you on that. I, I, I feel at the moment there are so many things we don't understand and our polarised, bifurcated world makes us feel we've got to take a side before we can feel compassion for another human. And it's a huge challenge. I'm grappling with it at the moment, you know, friends and family dividing in all kinds of directions. And I, I, I've had to really practice not understanding not knowing, not agreeing, but still seeing a need for radical compassion. And it reminds me of, of that poem by W.H. Auden, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to misquote it here, but there's that line that says, if equal affection cannot be, let me be the more loving one. You know, so essentially, even if, even if it seems really unfair, even if the stars are just not, never going to really care about me as a human down here on planet Earth, I am still going to be the more loving one. I am going to look at that star and love the hell out of it. Could not have said that better. And it is it is a practice. Mm. And and the rewards are there. We, we are a, a reward-orientated species. The feeling when you go into that space is deeply profound and personal. And it leaves me, Devon, lying in bed just pulsing, feeling incredibly alive you know I've got to lie and sit in it and and come to peace with what is quite a new feeling because it's not it's not practiced in our culture and yeah I invite anyone listening to this it's exactly why I wanted to have this conversation you know you you said that it's at the juncture the the hard moments where we have to practice these kinds of compassion and humanism you know that is the exact point at which we need to be discussing these things and the death penalty and dealing with somebody who's been accused of murder and you know the, these these are the hard the hard junctures so yes thank you very much for talking us through those humanist principles and i wish you all the luck with taking this journey further and providing that love and and sense of company to others going forward thank you it's thanks for having me sarah i, I appreciate it I think this conversation, this episode is best left with maybe a bunch of questions that, as Devon says, we should gladly and enthusiastically gravitate towards and relish the opportunity to wrestle with whenever we can. Some of the questions that came up for me in that conversation are, what would you answer or what would I answer if asked, show me something real, show me something true? Another might be, do you believe in the potential of humanity? And, or, do you think we must believe in it as a responsibility and to then work hard to demonstrate beautiful humanity wherever we can? 
This might feel like a false premise for hope or a false premise for adhering to the human endeavor more broadly. But is that okay? Are you willing to hang faith on this? For me, I guess I mostly am, because when we do step in and be the more loving one, when we do demonstrate radical compassion, when we tell the joke in the execution chamber or leave a final message for our quote-unquote killers that might just provide some peace in their lives, well, humanity makes sense. It suddenly hits us, right? It hits us in the solar plexus. It hits us really all over in, in the tear ducts. It makes sense as a thing of goodness, There's a point to it all. There's a point to us, even in, and especially in, the face of death. I mentioned this in the conversation with Devon, that the more we face death, and this has obviously come from philosophers throughout the ages, the more we contemplate, talk about death, the more that we worry about it, wonder about death, the more we are nudged into an urgent sense that we must live this bloody life that we've been granted hard and beautifully and now which is why I seek out these kinds of conversations with people like Devon and Sister Helen, who will do this with us. Now, throughout the conversation with Devon, I was reminded of something that a philosopher, an American philosopher, Jonathan Lear, once said, and I had to go and dig it up. It's about hope. He speaks of a humanist hope that he calls a radical kind of hope, not your everyday kind. He describes it as an honest reckoning that entails moving forward in the face of unbearable loss and with no rational justification for hope, just, and I quote, the hunch that we are onto something important about being human. Okay, let's leave it there. Go forth, be wild, live life bloody hard, live it beautifully and live it now. I'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.